Well, I'm glad you're here, and I'm Jared. I uh, get to continue our series, Meant to Be, today, New. The Bible tells us, I quote, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. End quote. Doesn't that sound delicious? Let's go home. Yeah. Out with the old, in with the new. Yep. Come to Jesus, it's New Year's. Everything is new. Here we go. But I have a, it might sound cynical, question. What exactly got new? Because I think I pack around plenty of the old. And I know some of you. And you've got some of the old too. So today let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about what's new. And why is this important? Well, I believe that your view of people affects your philosophy of parenting, of marriage, of education, of business management, of politics, and certainly of religion. I think today that you're going to have some what's that and some ahas as we move through a fantastic passage of Scripture today. I think that you're going to have some thoughts. Oh, that's why she thinks that way. And others will think that's why he's wrong most of the time. <laughs> yeah. So from the Bible, let's tackle three big questions. I'm disproportionately spending more time on the first of the three, less on the other two. That's just to relieve some anxiety as I drone on and on. Here we go. The first three, que the three questions are, number one, are people naturally good or bad? Well, some of you already know. We don't need to deal with that one. But you have different opinions about that. That'll be fun. Number two, who are you essentially at the core? And three, what's the limit of human potential? Hmm. Well, let's dive into what's new. What's new, first of all, is our nature. Each of us make assumptions about what people are like in general. And your philosophy of human nature is important because those assumptions about human nature directly influence how you treat people and influence how you think God treats people. Your anthropology influences your theology. So let me make three statements, and you can respond which you agree to most. Two statements. By the way, some of you just can't help but do it out loud, that's fine. You can out yourself. The rest of us will consider these inward responses. Here we go. I'm going to read the two sets twice. They're profound. First of all, this. Which do you agree with? People are basically good. And if they are in a positive environment, they will act good. Contrast. People are basically bad unless they are restrained. So otherwise, they'll act selfish and bad. Quickly again, people are basically good. If they're in a positive environment, they'll tend to do good. People are basically bad, and unless they are constrained, they will be selfish and act bad. Now, this is important to think through because the way you think, whether you have a positive or negative view of other people, is related to how much you will trust other people. But people with either an overly positive or negative view of others tend to misjudge 
others compared to those who don't show a bias either way. Thus, they judge people more accurately. Yet most of us have a tendency to lean toward overly positive or overly negative of others. We're either too trusting or becoming cynical. So you see the problem here. If we have a belief, the reason I ask you not to vote on the first one is uh, there wasn't C, which was neither of the above. If we're too trusting, we become gullible. If we're true negative, we become cynical. There must be some path in the middle of this. Your view of humans affects what you think about marriage, about relationships, about parenting, about business, about education, about politics, and certainly what you believe about God. So what does the Bible say about human nature? We're going to continue our study in this series of the first two chapters of Ephesians, and I get to read the first few verses of Ephesians 2, and and I brought one of my Bibles today because I just get to show off that these happen to be the two chapters that fall out when I open it up. Now, apparently, I like Ephesians 1 and 2. I do. By the way, there's no arrogance here. If you go back to Deuteronomy, the pages aren't technically stuck together, but they certainly aren't going to fall out yet. I understand. But I really like Ephesians 1 and 2. And this is what the first three verses say. For as you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And by the way, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest... We were by nature deserving of wrath. Dead on arrival. DOA. Now, this is curious language. It's actually a paradox. Paul says, you're dead. But you were sure living a lot. (laughs) You're absolutely dead. But while you're living life, you tend to Truly, the walking dead. There should be royalties for Paul back for that title. Yeah. So you were there, kind of like a light bulb that doesn't have electricity to it. Most of you are way younger than me. You'll have no recollection of the Columbus Day storm, but I was there. I was there. The earth had just cooled. A lot of... (laughs) A lot of wind came this way and rain. Trees fell over in our yard, right on the farm. An electrical line broke off in our driveway, and my parents noticed that. They made us stay in the house because they were afraid that that line was a live wire. It did not look alive to me, but we needed to make sure that the folks came out and turned it off so that it was dead. So this wire was still there. It exists. The infrastructure is there, but it is not fired up and alive. And Paul says, you are there in your personhood, but you are not alive to the things of God. But you are very much the walking dead, living out with a whole nother set of desires. And he calls it the fleshly nature. 
we are very much alive in tune to and prone toward our senses. And so what we hear and see and smell and taste and touch, if it is good to us, that is the primary driver of this thing that he calls fleshly nature. He calls it the cravings of our flesh. So this is the common human condition. We emphasize the things that we sense, but the fleshly nature either completely ignores or certainly de-emphasizes the higher and spiritual values. So we are naturally, by nature, sensual. That is until our current reality is intervened and replaced with a new nature, one that is first of all spiritual and then mental, emotional, and physical. And then we find actually that this new nature was actually our original nature. So let's go back to the beginning. And when we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we find out that you were God's idea. I know you came with someone that is hard to imagine that, but here it is. God talks to himself. So the Trinity, which is thoroughly loving, thoroughly communicating, and thoroughly experiencing joy, speaks among themselves and says, I quote, let us make humans in our own image according to our likeness. Now, when I was a kid growing up, I just assumed that God was being redundant. Likeness and image being synonymous, and he's just trying to underscore it, even though Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that cover quite a bit of territory, like the big beginning and when everything got started and messed up, I don't think that he was wasting words here. But he says, in the beginning, God, the Trinity, chose to make us in his image and in his likeness. So God finished creation, including humans, and posted a cosmic review and gave it a very good rating. Humans started with a five-star rating. And then recorded in Genesis chapter 3, the wheels came off. Then humans decided that they would break from the relationship, and that separation is called death, with God, and that they would chart their own path. And that produced horrific results, including power struggles, hierarchy of some humans over another, including in sex and in class, anger, jealousy, homicide, exhausting physical work, and an exploitive relationship with nature. And that's what we were born into. Our nature, likeness of God, went from a rating of five to zero, fleshly nature. Well, we all have a story of how we came to have our philosophy of human beings. I want to tell you a little bit of mine. And you've heard me, if you've been around for a while, make many references to the churches in my past, the two I grew up in. Both I have such huge regard and respect and gratitude toward but I also want you to know that some things may have been said that may not have been uh, in line with what I think today. Probably more importantly, as a kid growing up, I just missed some stuff along the way. But I'm back in the flannel graph day. And at Genesis 1 and 2, the flannel graph was God made stuff. 
But we really started the Bible in Genesis 3 when people messed things up. And I heard that God swore. One of God's first acts was to swear and was to damn humans. And in fact, Genesis chapter 3, the word cursed is used twice. God cursed. But you know what he cursed? He cursed the devil and he cursed the ground. But what I learned was our story really starts in Genesis 3. Eve was bad. Adam was bad. I am bad. You are bad. And they, whoever they are, are really bad. But then God forgives you and you get good. But you fail and go bad. And if you ask, he'll make you good, but you'll go bad and good and bad. And you do that for the rest of your life. And Jesus comes back and then he makes you super good. That's the story. <laughs> now, I have to tell you that there's a lot of that story that I still subscribe to. And frankly, if you make it too much more sophisticated than that five-year-old rendition, you're going to be going off the wheels. Much of that story is very true. But let's unpack it a little bit. Because I believe that we started not in Genesis chapter 3, but we started in Genesis chapter 1. And that's the part of the story that I think is an alternative story. Now this light that God created and he has tremendous potential for. He made us in his image, and all humans retain the image of God. And when we come to Christ, we are now being transformed back into the likeness of God. So we can see traces of God in every human being. Image, spiritual DNA. He's the Father. But we simultaneously may not look like God at all in our brokenness, in our thoughts, our motivations, and in our actions. So we have his image, and we have his broken likeness. And the process that each of us are engaged in as we've accepted Christ's forgiveness and that gift of the Holy Spirit who comes and is the electricity in this real but empty vessel and makes us alive. This work of the Spirit now in us, when the light is turned on, is a progressive healing across our lifetime. As we now, bearers of God's image, but broken in his likeness, now begin to grow back into his likeness. And the Apostle Paul writes, and later today as we conclude, we'll sing, from glory to glory, we are being changed into the likeness of Christ. The big Bible word for that progression is sanctification. It comes from the Latin word from which we get saint. You can nudge somebody and you say you're a better saint than you were last week. We hope that's true. You might nudge him and say, but you have a ways to go next week. And that's true as well. Sanctification, making you saintly, impressing your likeness and healing it to become more like the likeness of Christ. And so we have image and likeness. The image described in Genesis refers to our essence in God, which cannot be increased or decreased. 
You began with a divine DNA, a blueprint tucked away in your being that wants to be expressed and to grow out. God's image in you, it begs to be fulfilled. You are glorious. And from glory to glory, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Likeness is our personal embodiment of that divine DNA. And though we differ in likeness, the imago Dei, the image of God, persists in all humans. And the essential image of God is beautiful in everyone. But the likeness of God is marred and broken in each of us. Following Jesus is this life of progressional, progressive healing as he recreates us in his likeness. You were created by a loving God. And the start was original blessing, not original sin. God's starting point for us was very good, not total depravity. From God's side, we have always been and always will be loved, known and loved, just as the persons of the Trinity know and love and experience joy together. God cannot not love his image in us. God loves me, God loves you, and God loves them, whoever they are in your world. And so Jesus picks up on this truth, and now he says to us, so you have to love and to recognize the divine image, even in our enemies. And part of our life of growth is to discover God's image in others that we love and we treat with compassion and respect. And that circle begins to enlarge, and it begins to grow into these circles that Jesus prescribed, including our enemies and the least of our brothers and sisters, and certainly to children. And we take the humble approach that says, all I can do in this is to trust God's grace in my life. And this is how we are saved by faith, which we'll read in a moment. So notice the slide. We hold in tension then this view of human nature. On one hand, humans bear God's image and all are worthy of respect and compassion and love. While simultaneously, humans bear scars that distort God's likeness. And isn't it true that many of us are horribly scarred? So what do we do with these two tensions? Well, I think first, we come and say, God, thank you for creating me. We sang a song earlier about our Father and in our Father's house, and the plans eternally that he has for each of us. And we come and we accept the free gift of forgiveness in Christ. And in accepting that forgiveness, the bulb becomes empowered by the Spirit, and that light of God begins to turn on and to increase as we progressively heal. And yes, as we sang, someday Jesus will come back for us in death or in his second coming. And in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I think that's fast we are going to have the job finished in the gap of likeness 
that we have not progressively healed yet in so that we will all be like Christ. And some of us might need to reintroduce ourselves so that we're recognized there. I know, I know. Some of us have a way to go. So first, we've discovered this. We have a new, or maybe even better, a renewed nature. And second, I mentioned there would be three. The second one is we have a new identity. Yeah. So if I met you for the first time and I asked, tell me a little bit about yourself, what would you tell me? When studies are done and a lot of people are asked to complete that survey, people speak about things that are specific characteristics of themselves and make long lists of those. But interestingly, those qualities tend to all fall in one of five categories. Let me mention them to you. First of all, there's, there's physical characteristics. You might, you might tell me about yourself physically, such as your sex or your race or your age or your height. You might tell me that you're uh, diabetic or athletic or hard of hearing or energetic. Or maybe second, some of the characteristics you mentioned would involve personal traits or attributes things that don't involve your relationships with other people. For example, you might tell me that you're a foodie, or you hunt elk, or you scrapbook. Susan, I don't really get that. <laughs> or that you're retired, or that you're a student. A third, you might tell me about relationships. You might, you might mention that you're a husband, or a wife, or a mother, or a father, or a sibling, or a child, or the coach of your kid's soccer team. Or maybe fourth, another aspect of your identity involves your membership in groups. So you might tell me that you're a member of a, a political party or that you're going to join one of the church groups that are uh, listed out there in the lobby today or that you are a citizen of a particular country that you're very connected to. And finally, there's your spiritual identity. Many of you today in this room would describe yourself as a child of God. Maybe you have friends or family members who would describe themselves as part of the cosmos or some other system of belief. So here's the deal. Although every, everyone's identities include physical, personal, relational, group, and spiritual characteristics, all of us differ in the proportion of our identity that falls into each of those categories. Hmm. So think for a moment as you look at the list. If you were to take 100% of your life and divide it up among those five, what percentage of dominance of your identity would you place in each of those categories? As you think about yourself, let me ask, are you mostly defined in terms of Appearance and goals and motives and traits and abilities, interests? How much are you defined by your relationships with family and friends? Or how about the groups that you affiliate with? How do you identify as a spiritual being? And how do you express the priority of that identity? Keeping with the list here for a moment, the answers to these questions reflect what parts of your identity are most important to you and determines, therefore, 
your primary focus and primary goals. Now, this is what helps us understand a little bit about why some other people are so different from us. And maybe you've just kind of been puzzled and you've said, I have no idea why they make the choices that they're making. Well, one grid to look through is, I wonder how they have allocated the dominance across their various parts of identity. And when we understand that they may have another area that's much more important to them than to us, we can understand why they're so passionate about that. If you have a very relatively appreciative but weak affiliation with being a citizen of your country and someone else has prioritized that group affiliation toward the top of his or her identity, you're going to express your expressions of patriotism in quite different ways. That helps us understand that. Now, if you are a parent or you hope to be a parent, you're going to really appreciate this grid. In fact, can we have that list of five up for just a minute? Because there's some childhood development stuff that's going on here as well. And this drives the kid crazy and it drives parents even more crazy. So this little baby pops out and this little baby doesn't have a lot of self-awareness, but it has a high survival instinct, right? And it expresses her interest in surviving not in a variety of ways, but to cover a variety of means. It makes noise. And eventually, as a toddler, she becomes to become more self-aware. Self-awareness is another word for identity that differentiates from others. And she becomes a more some of, something self-aware of her physical characteristics and her physical differentiation from parents and others. And then personal characteristics that you begin to see emerge in her personality and life. And then there's these social relationships. And she's, she's confused about this. I'm not, I'm not sure I want to go into this, this uh, class on Sunday morning with those people that I don't know. And you encourage them. And she, she's growing in this. And you encourage this kind of behavior until she's an adolescent. And then she wants to explore some new social groups and you say, no, I think that you'd like to stay in your bedroom and be homeschooled for the rest of your life and never come out. (laughs) So the kid's doing crazy making of trying to explore and figure out and is anxious about and finding this world of growing circles of identity. And the parents are going, you go for it, kid. You can be anything, baby, but don't do that. No, come back here. Ah, You will never do that. It's crazy making time. And then, of course, this is how it works, isn't it? Once kids are done being kids, they're professional at being kids, but they'll never be one again. And the other part of the irony is once parents get done, they're fully experienced and they're not going to do that again. So it's just you have to work it out. You have to work it out. But parents, I'm encouraging you this. As we're in a moment, we're going to move on. Uh, Parents, I encourage you with this. Have your certainty about your identity allocations Because when the kid is dealing with all of his ambiguities across development of life and is trying to figure out and explore and test and see, be an anchor. Be an anchor that says, I'm centered. I know who I am. I know who I'm about. And I want you to know that you can look this way and you can see someone who has been on this journey that has decided how to allocate the portions of my identity in a Christ-focused priority way. 
This is what the Bible says about our identity. We pick it up in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus (laughs) in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I want you to listen and bask in and marinate and absorb what God says about your identity. You are loved, alive, saved, raised up in Christ, exemplary and proudly displayed by him forever. That's your primary identity. If we could go back just a moment to the slide with the five again. I want you to see as I summarize these first four verses now, and we're going to wrap up briefly with the next three, which are just three of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. But before we move on to the third, I want you to notice what is happening here as Paul takes us from the walking dead to the risen, eternally alive and exemplary. This progression from made in image, broken likeness, and growing back into likeness. What is going on here? What's he describing here for us as it relates to identity? He says, you were essentially born into sensuality, the five senses, and your experience with those senses telling you selfishly what you want to do. That's your orientation. By the way, you were not only fueled with your own sensuality, but that was inspired by Satan. Selfishness inspired by Satan, the God of this world, he described him in our passage. And you look across these and you ask the question, which of these can I do without God? Well, I can certainly have a physical identity. That's what the five physical senses are all about. That comes naturally by nature. How about a personal identity? Of course. I can have social relationships without God's help or leadership or guidance, and I can certainly choose who I want to group up with in life without others. What's all new in this new creation in Christ? It's number five, isn't it? It's your spiritual vitality and life in Christ. Access through forgiveness in Jesus of our sins and the fullness of his spirit to give us the life, the electricity of the spirit to cause us then to grow into who he has for us to be. So I'm asking a rhetorical question. I want you to think about it. So if I naturally can give attention to one, two, three, and four, what is it that I will probably have to give a special attention to in my life when I come to Christ that didn't come naturally before, that I don't have any habits about, that I don't have any routines to express or support? Probably number five. So I must give attention to my spiritual identity because it is the one that I am the least familiar with. 
I must give attention to it as a priority because it is the one that I have ignored earlier in my life. But Paul would say to us from these first five verses, you have to primarily give attention to your spiritual identity because ultimately it is the all-consuming identity of who you are in God and who you're becoming in Christ. Raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places in Christ Jesus on display for all of eternity for whatever else God has or will create. And he's going to say, go look at them. There will never be a greater story of my grace than those people right over there. You cannot believe how much they screwed things up. Yeah. You are God's loved child. Make that development and expression, a driving priority for your life. So we've learned two things. You have a new nature, which is, which is actually a renewed nature into God's not only image, but likeness. And you have a new identity. You are a loved child of God. Let's wrap it up with a third, a new confidence. What are your human limits anyway. You know, I love it when I see parents encouraging their kids to do new things. You know, most of us would not experiment in life unless we had some encouragement and, and validation that we're in a safe environment. And so the kid tries the new thing and the parent says, oh yes, the kid's playing soccer. I don't know why this has come to mind. It seems maybe I've been to a soccer game recently. And, and at some point, the new thing is that the kid actually kicks the ball toward his or her own goal. This is a new thing. The parents are excited about this. You can do it. You can actually kick the ball at the right end of the field. And then there's halftime and it's switched. And it's very, very hard to make sense, <laughs> make sense of that thing. Yeah. So, so parents, encourage kids to do new things. Those of you who are educators, encourage kids to press into new things. But here's the deal. I also have seen parents lie to their children when they say to them, and you can do anything you want to do, and you can be anything you want to be, because that's just not biblical. For example, as far as I know at my advanced age, I am never going to be a mother. <laughs> I've been trying, but last week I gave up trying to be an NFL quarterback. <laughs> there are just some things that are beyond my human limitations. And so in Scripture, as God's child, wouldn't it be cool if he told us what we cannot do so we don't have illusions that will end up being disillusioned? And wouldn't it be cool if he was very clear about what we can do so that we can live a life full of purpose around the things that he's called us to? And that's what we read as we wrap up the day in these last three verses in our reading. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. It says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Even this faith is a gift from God. None of it's by works. No one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. People's beliefs about what they can do is called self-confidence. Whether or not they can accomplish certain goals. Self-confidence has some very powerful results. People who are 
Highly self-confident, tend to be more optimistic. They tend to be less anxious, less depressed. They tend to be lower in the fear of failure because they have a sense that probably I'm going to be successful. But we all also need to know what we can't do. And the Bible is very clear. First, what you can't do is save yourself. No religion allowed. No steps to heaven. I don't supplement and garnish God's grace. It's all or nothing. I accept his gift of grace or I do not accept his forgiveness in life. You cannot save yourself. You cannot keep your salvation by behaving. No works, no boasting. You didn't contribute. It's a gift of grace. Don't even brag about your faith. He had to give you the gift of faith so you could even receive the grace. You cannot save yourself. But here's what you can do. In Jesus, you can live a life full of purpose. You are a beautiful poem that God has created. You rhyme like no one else rhymes. You know that, don't you? (laughs) You sound like no one else sounds. The beauty of how you're constructed is as unique as your DNA. God has stamped you with uniqueness in his image, and he has prepared you for this time and this place, and he has designed good works for you to engage in. You can't save yourself, but you can have a life full of God's purpose for you. And if you are breathing today, he's not done with you, and he has plans still to roll out through you of good works for others. So our new self-confidence actually is not a self-confidence. It's a God-confidence. It's confident in God's love for you, his forgiveness to you, his full acceptance of you, and confident in your life, which is filled of purpose because of his design for you. All things new. Nature, identity, and confidence. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us believe your word? We today receive your grace. We receive the forgiveness, your forgiveness for our sin. We receive the life of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we turn toward you and We recognize that our lives can easily be substantially created around the first four. They come naturally. But God, would you lead us? And would you give us inspiration? And would you give us courage to be first spiritual beings? To be first your sons and daughters? To give first priority to the life of your spirit in us and to let 
your spirit guide and influence and lead the other four identity domains? Would you grow us today, Lord, and this week into more of your likeness? Come to the scabby and scarred areas. Come to the places that are marred and broken and shattered. And come, Holy Spirit, and change us from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. If you agree, would you say amen with me?